Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Avery Weinman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Israel Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Yer Wallach about his latest book, A City in Fragments, Urban Text in Modern Jerusalem, which he published with Stanford University Press in 2020. Wallach completed his BSc at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, his MA at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, and his PhD at the University of London. Currently, he is a senior lecturer in Israeli studies at SOAS in the University of London, where he is also the chair of the Center for Jewish Studies and a member of the Center for Palestine Studies, the London Middle East Institute, the Center for Migration and Diaspora Studies, the Center for Cultural, Literary, and Postcolonial Studies, and the Center for Ottoman Studies. Wallach's book, A City in Fragments, analyzes the nexus between text, urban space, imperialism, capitalism, secularism, nationalism, and modernity in a period of consequential change for the city, as it transitioned from Ottoman to British and then to Israeli rule in the late 19th and 20th centuries. The book is a fascinating and creative piece of scholarship that makes innovative use of the often neglected refuse of urban texts. Things such as stone inscriptions, money, street signs, graffiti, banners, and identity cards to examine new applications and understandings of texts as a means of demarcation, organization, ideology, and control. At the juncture of these textual forms themselves and the ideas that they signify, Wallach demonstrates that it was not just the technologies used to produce text or the proliferation of visible text in public space that was new, but that the very idea of text function was a new product of modern discourse. This exciting insight ties together literary theory, post-colonial criticism of modernity, and urban histories for a book that casts an understudied dimension of the city of Jerusalem in a fresh light. So with that, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Wallach. Um, Thank you. It's my pleasure. So first, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, What is your background and how did you get interested in history in general and this subject in particular? Um, I uh, was born in Jerusalem. I grew up in Jerusalem. Um, And I started... I guess started my first degree, I was doing a mix of computer science and humanities. And for some years, I, um, you know, uh, vacillated between these two. I wasn't sure if I want to be a software developer or a historian. But then uh, history won. And I did a second degree, um, an MA, which focused on modern um, European history, largely at UEA, Norwich, and then I um, studied at Birkbeck College in the University of London, um, which went back to, and that's where I started looking at questions of textuality and um, and, and space, urban space. Um, and yeah, so I've been, I think throughout, I would say, uh, even from my undergraduate days, I was interested in the interplay of ideas and a material culture in history. How does ideology manifest in either in art or in visual culture or in everyday life? And how do we understand ideology through, um, through kind of the simple um, facts of our life? 
Right. And then so to set up the rest of the conversation, let's first unpack the academic fields in which this book is set and some of the theoretical frameworks upon which it builds. So first, let's start with kind of the nuts and bolts in the historical field. Uh, can you sketch a brief outline of contemporary scholarship on late Ottoman through British Mandate Palestine? And after establishing kind of the factual basis, uh, can you briefly explain what the genre of urban studies is and how you used it in writing this book? So, um, Palestine is, I mean, there's lots written on Palestine in Middle Eastern studies in various perspectives and you know, some for more Israel studies, more focus on the issue, some more focus on our Palestinian uh, society. Um, my, my book is part of what's called the relational approach. That's to look at uh, Jewish communities and the issue and their interaction with the Arab-Palestinian society and, and to think of the historical processes, something that um, shapes uh, and creates these uh, two separate societies in itself. So rather to assume that there is a Jewish society and uh, and uh, an Arab Palestinian society in Palestine, and therefore obviously they have a conflict, um, the uh, approach of relational histor- historians is to say that you know we don't assume that these things exist, but we uh, we study how they come into being and they come into being through relations between different communities. Um, that's, I mean, Zach Lockman, Zachary Lockman is the first to kind of articulate it to run a relational history. Um, there are plenty of other historians that um, either use the term or, or do something similar, whether it's, um, Abigail Jacobson or uh, Michelle Campos or um, Salim Tamari, who do kind of versions of, of this kind of um, approach. Um, and it's something that has become more popular, I would say, in the last 20 years. So has the emphasis on cultural and social history. I, I think we're moving beyond the kind of the strict political history that focused on um, uh, the, the, the chronologies of kind of the conflict and various kind of diplomacy and so forth to uh, approaches that are more, um, that, that try to take this to different uh, discussion. And, and there's various, whether it's uh, about placing a Palestine in a bigger context um, or focusing on, on aspects that, um, social and cultural aspects that have been um, ignored. There's a lot of emphasis on, uh, on uh, development in the last a few years. There's um, works on electricity and, and, uh, and development and the emergence of, of uh, the Arab uh, bourgeoisie and its approach to capitalist development. So lots of things happening. Um, my book, uh, in, in a, uh, it's, part, it's part of a discussion on Jerusalem and urban history in Palestine. And there again, I think the last 20 years have been a focus on or a shift 
towards local perspectives, towards um, understanding the cities and as not already predetermined by um, the bigger trajectories of, of uh, Zionism, Palestinian nationalism and colonialism and so forth, but as arenas in which they, these dynamics played out, but, um, um, you know, with attention to local detail. Specifically around Jerusalem, I mean, the 20, 30 years ago, um, the historiography was predominantly on Jerusalem kind of was from a Zionist perspective that saw Jerusalem as a backwaters, as underdeveloped, backwards city of Ottoman decay and all these kind of cliches that um, we know that, you know, Incom- incompatible with the historical record, record that that's not how we uh, think of the Ottoman Empire in the last in in, its, in the in the final stages of the empire, and specifically not on the urban centers of the Levant. So, um, and in in that sense, that's that that's um, where my book intervenes as as part of that literature. And again, I'll, I'll mention the importance of uh, Selim Tamari and the Jerusalem Quarterly of introducing a much more rich and nuanced uh, approach that kind of didn't assume the nationalist conflict be- before it starts and didn't assume uh, the Zionist-Arab conflict before it starts and kind of uh, looks at late Ottoman Jerusalem as expanding, modernizing, transforming um, city, which is very unstable in many ways and an arena of, of transformation. So that's one aspect, and that's kind of the local and of Jerusalem and, and its history is a kind of urban history. But I should say that the book also interacts and um, correspond with and kind of engages with a lot of um, um, forms of his- historical literature on each of the specific um, media that I look at. So if I, for example, if I, if I look at stone inscriptions, then I have to look at epigraphy and the study of inscriptions as a historical source material, which is a very rich historical tradition in Arabic, but also uh, to lesser degree in, in, in Hebrew, at least not when it comes to uh, modern inscriptions. Again, when I looked at coins, I had to think about uh, the study of coins and banknotes, which is a developed field in itself. So all these things, I had to kind of interact with different kind of forms of liter- literature where my interest was to locate all these textual media, that is anything that people could read in the street or in social situations, as part of one field of reading and writing in urban setting. So that's why it was a very difficult uh, book to write in that sense, because I had to interact not just with the history of the issue, not just with the history of our Palestinian society, but also with quite a lot of different fields of subfields of historical research and to make sure that uh, I do this in a kind of a diligent and, 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 and serious way. Yeah, this leads me naturally into the next question that I have. Um, as we move from really the complexity of the methodology um, to 
more of the abstract ideas that underpinned how you approach these texts and thinking about what the texts actually mean. So now that we have kind of the historical scaffolding in place, um, my question is what kind of thinkers and concepts shaped how you approached the idea of text and particularly how we understand text as a marker of modernity? Um, so I think the, the scholar that, or the, the writer that has been most influential and I think closest to what I had in mind was uh, Walter Benjamin. Um, and, and as his work on textuality specifically in urban text, which as far as I know, received no interest in the scholarship about him. So, um, um, but Benjamin is interesting in, in, in several ways. And first, he, he is fascinated with signage, with advertisements, with text in the streets. Um, he has a short book uh, called One Way Street, Einbahnstraße, um, which is a series of aphorisms and, and short kind of stories and, and musings of as kind of social critique, which is all organized by headings, which are things he reads in the street. So he goes on a, a one-way street. It starts with a kind of the, you know, the, 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 the sign, the traffic sign saying one-way street, which says the text is there. And then he goes around and he reads money, he reads adverts, he reads uh, uh, warning signs. And all these are invitations for, for social critique for him as a way to kind of um, frame and structure the way to understand about and the world around him and the world is, is transforming and changing. So just one example. It relates very much to the Arcades project, which is, again, and it, this is a much bigger attempt to understand modernity through Paris, through various kind of forms of um, um, aspects of daily life, from fashion to bicycles, but a lot about uh, street signs and, and signage and so forth. Um, and and Benjamin here is... Um, was useful for me. Um, A is someone that tries to read historical change through things that people kind of disregard or take for granted. And to see historical big important shifts um, in the political economy and the and in, 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 in the way that power operates, through these things is very much relates to what I try to um, do in the book. I think he's also someone who understood the text is changing. And for him, the, um, the metaphor for what he was trying to do is the card index. So rather than taking the book as, as the prime example of what text is, he thinks of card index, which is a much more kind of it's an artifact. It's something that you can, you know, you introduce, you put a card, you take a card out. It's much more fragmented and it's much more mobile and open to interpretation. And, and, and it's, a, it's a different way of reading and writing. And that's something I think he's very, very much aware that, that the textual media 
changes and, and therefore the opportunities to think about demand that scholar that think about textuality and its history. And finally, I would say about Benjamin that he sees opportunities for a liberation and emancipation through this kind of new textual technology. And that's, uh, and that's different from a lot of late 20th century um, thinkers that I mentioned in the book, whether it's Desserteau or others, Michel Desserteau, who see text primarily as an oppressive technology. And when they think of power inscribing itself onto, the, onto space, onto people, they see it primarily as an oppressive uh, operation, which it is. I mean, when you think of why street signs are, street names are introduced and what's the role in terms of kind of uh, strengthening the uh, the grip that the state has over residents, it's undoubtedly part of state uh, discipline. But And I think Benjamin sees that perfectly well, but he also sees the opportunities to undo that. And he sees that once the text is out there in the street, what, you know, even if the state put it there for a very explicit ideological or, or disciplinary purpose, the, the text can be read differently. And it can be read against the state's intention. And that kind of... Em- promise for emancipation is something that I think is very important. First, as a kind of a principle that we shouldn't assume that power operates in a unidirectional way and it has this omnipresence and omnipower, which I think that's sometimes people do and that's a mistake, but also because the state is afraid of text being taken uh, out of control and text being read against the grain. I mean, you can see this in the, and I could see this in, in, in when I talk about various textual uh, artifacts and technologies which the state introduces, they're clearly very much afraid that this will be taken out of their hands. And that is that text has that promise or risk of being used against power which I see very much with Benjamin, and, and I think it, it kind of captures something both about the power text, the anxiety of the state against it. A nuance I want to make sure gets highlighted here is that what we're dealing with in this transition point from the pre-modern to the modern period is really an essential change in text function itself. So to connect to another thinker who influenced how you use text in this book, um, to connect to Derrida, we're looking at a moment in which the signifier supersedes the signified in meaning, when text's ability to dictate um, what we're looking at is more important than what we're looking at itself. So this is a vital idea, but somewhat complex. Is this something that you can elaborate on a bit further? So, I mean, the, the, the most immediate example, say you, you take something out of the fridge and you look at the expiry date, Right, you don't look at the the food itself, and you know, to say is it good or is it not. I mean, often we just look at the expiry date to tell us if it's still good, and that's kind of that's just one example in which text and the signifier here kind of determines how we treat the signifier, um, and we kind of re- we trust the sign more than the thing in itself. Now, I think. I mean, 
data is very, very uh, kind of important in this regard. And it's someone that I kind of reluctantly uh, came to really appreciate his the strength of it, his analysis. Um, and particularly he's writing about supplements and the idea that um, um, the, the idea is that a supplement is something that is connected to the original object, but um, in a way determines the meaning of the original object and sometimes comes to stand for the original object. Uh, and what's interesting about the supplement is that once we uh, that supplementary relationship exists, it's no longer possible to think of the object in itself without that supplement. Now, for Derrida, this is the about speech and uh, and writing. So that the the difference between original presence, um, you know, which is the speech, and and text that is the kind of the residue or the supplement to the original presence. For me, it was the difference between the supplement as a sign and the um, original object was the building, um, if it's a sign on architecture or the person, if we think of, of identity card as a kind of supplement to the person, so we have a situation in which the, the ID card comes to define the person. It's not something that is uh, insignificant. It, it eventually has the power to, you know, to dictate one's life and, and whether, you know, you can travel somewhere or not. And if you're caught doing something, what happens with you and so forth. One thing that is important to say that for Derrida, this is an existential condition. So that's the kind of essential relation between writing and writing for him. It's not just alphabetic uh, text. It's it's much wider than this than and, 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 and language and the world. And that's where I differ. I think that's where I say this is a, a, as a the, the things I'm talking about are really mo- a modern situation. And that kind of relationship between text and the world is very much a modern one. That idea of text as a label, as something that you can stick onto something, and then it means what that thing is. You know, uh, again, to give a, 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 you know, a, a kind of everyday example, when we have label on Apples saying that they are apples. It's a, it's a ridiculous situation, but but that's kind of the, the moment where we are, that you need a sign to say what the thing is. But that's very much that's very much a modern situation. I mean, uh, the, the whole logos and brands is 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 not uh, much older than a century. The idea of, of text as a label is a very modern one is something of the last 100, 150 um, years. And and that's something that I think Derrida's understanding makes sense if we see it as a historical development rather than an an existential uh, um, condition. And I think it's important to say that because 
a lot of time, you know, people assume that the way we read is, you know, doesn't change. But what I try to show in the book is that it profoundly changes. And it profoundly changes in the space, in the time that I'm looking at, which is Jerusalem between the middle of the 19th century and, and uh, 1948 in Arabic and Hebrew. It's, it's, it really dramatically changes uh, between a, a moment in which Hebrew and Arabic are anchored in in the sanctity of the scriptures and their status as holy scripts and in congregational life, in imperial religious order and so forth. And by by the 1940s, um, a century later, that still exists to a degree, but there's lots of other things like um, colonialism, like uh, settler colonialism, um, nationalism, capitalism, and new commercial uses, which means that when people read in the streets, it's it's a very transformed world. And that's something to keep in mind when we think about textuality today, which again is going through uh, profound and rapid transformations. Right. So this big, big idea, main argument that what we're dealing with here in the modern period really is a fundamental change in the role of text and how text operates into the world. Um, I think that leads us very naturally directly to the case studies and examples that you dwell on in the book. So the first two chapters deal with Arabic and Hebrew stone inscriptions and their changing meaning and function from the early modern period to the late 19th, uh, late Ottoman period and the 20th century when it becomes the British mandate. So can you tell us what these changes in Arabic and Hebrew are and how they were influenced by ideas of Ottomanism, the Nakhta, and Zionism? So the stone inscriptions are very important because if you arrived in Jerusalem in 1850, um, you wouldn't see a lot of texts around you. Um, uh, no advertisement as far as I uh, I could tell. Uh, and um, uh, very few other kind of, uh, you know, there's a bit of uh, religious graffiti and, and, and maybe a bit of um, uh, handbills uh, notices, but the main form of monumental textuality is stone inscriptions in Arabic. And these are in Islamic stone inscriptions. So this was the most visible form of, of text that was there. And this was very visible. I mean, we have accounts by, uh, by visitors to the city, but they also used to be painted. So these inscriptions, which were placed over more than a millennium by various kinds of dynasties and princes and so forth, um, were still being painted by different colors on a regular basis, which meant that they continued to be written into, into the city. It wasn't just that somebody placed them and and everybody forgot about them. It continued, uh, they, they continued to function in that sense. And I show, um, there's a map that shows this, that they were also located in different, you know, in very specific parts of the city, which were the most in, important parts, whether it's the um, Al-Aqsa Hama Sharif and the uh, areas around it, which were the centers of also commerce and of 
um, um, the states, you know, the the main court and the uh, and the main uh, palace of the governor and so forth. So text was very kind of many from that side. It kind of symbolizes where what's important and where, um, and that's that's in Arabic and that's um, uh, Islamic stone inscriptions. In Hebrew, um, there were an the, the uh, medium of stone inscriptions in Hebrew is very similar to uh, Islamic ones, but there were very few Jewish institutions at this point, um, so the Hebrew was not very visible. And we're talking about a few thousands of Jews that lived in Jerusalem at the, at the time and a handful of, of synagogues. Um, that changes when there's rapid Jewish immigration to the city towards the late 19th century, and suddenly we see hundreds and hundreds of inscriptions, hundreds of uh, Jewish institutions, which are schools and synagogues and, and so forth. So suddenly Hebrew emerges uh, to the street quite dramatically, but it's a very different Hebrew from the Hebrew that will later appear in the 20th century. It's, um, it's religious, congregational Hebrew, um, it's not uh, national in any uh, sense. It doesn't claim Palestine for some kind of Jewish return. It's really about uh, embedding Jerusalem as part of a Jewish global network of patronage and charity. What's interesting about uh, both Islamic and Jewish Hebrew inscriptions are that they're really they're embedded with the fabric of, of buildings and um, they're not some kind of external uh, signifier. They're very much part of the wall or the, uh, you know, just above the door and so forth. And also that um, they're not there to tell you what the name of the building is. So usually it's a, quite a lot of text that you have to read for the inscription, which gives you details of who gave the money and what were the conditions and what's the um, what's the building for and the date of the construction and sometimes a verse. But, you know, it's, sometimes it doesn't tell you the function of the building and usually it doesn't tell you the name of the building. Again, very, very different from monumental writing today and various signs that we see on buildings. So... And the purpose of these inscriptions was not to tell you this is the, um, um, I don't know, Tzemach Tzedek Synagogue, or this is the, um, um, uh, this is uh, this and this madrasa. It was more about this kind of uh, embedding the act of charity of somebody who gave the money um, within the building and to position it within a kind of network of religious charity, learning, um, welfare, and so forth. Now, that changes quite dramatically as we move to the 20th century, where we see the, the arrival of new kinds of signs that were either external to the buildings or sometimes, um, sometimes um, uh, stone inscriptions still in the buildings, but very different kind of texts. So these were much more operated as a label, as something that designed to tell you very, very uh, succinctly um, what the name 
of the institution and what's its role. And the reason it's so important that uh, is is that that kind of moves us to a world in which text is a signifier, and therefore it's also easier to imagine changes in names and meanings. So um, that introduces a kind of instability to the landscape, which isn't there um, in in the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, that the the risk or the danger that somebody will come and just change the name and the meaning of the institution just by slapping a different kind of sign on it is a new anxiety that is really very much connected to this um, new way of signposting. And of course, this was a very real risk in Jerusalem of the 20th century where you have suddenly competing claims of a space and where you have the emergence of Zionism as a national ideology that is very much about territorialization and claiming space, then the kind of the 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 meaning of text as as a tool that can claim space and architecture and change their meaning become much more important. Yeah, it seems to me like the big rupture here as we transition in time period is that we're seeing a text undergo this desanctification process where it's moving from profound and somewhat esoteric symbols to banal and descriptive texts. And I found it fascinating that the Nakhda um, nationalism in the Arab world and also Zionism, these definitively modern phenomenon, um, actually address the idea of text in similar ways here. And another similarity that I wanted to pull out that I found particularly fascinating and perhaps explaining why it is that users of Arabic and users of Hebrew responded to changes in modern textuality. Similarly, was this idea of an aniconic um, textual tradition. Can you elaborate a little bit on what an aniconic tradition is, um, how it works in Islam and also in Judaism and how that shaped uh, modern text? So, yeah, I think that's why it's interesting to study these um, together. Um, text is a, um, you know, a privileged register in both in Judaism and Islam. Um, it's the primary form of uh, ornament in religious architecture and the f- primary mode of signification, you know, unlike in churches where there's lots of iconic uh, elements. And that comes, of course, from the uh, prohibition on on iconic elements uh, 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 in both Judaism and Islam. And there's Obviously, there's exceptions to that. I mean, the um, so, so um, you know we do have examples of various kind of iconic elements in in Islamic uh, architecture uh, and also in, in in Jewish visual culture. But these are uh, you know secondary or marginal compared to the importance of text. I think as as the main kind of the, the the main um, visual uh, register and that and that's also partly because text has a you know sacredness in itself that the, the uh, idea is that the letters themselves have sanctity which um, is not the case with Christianity I think in Christianity I mean the word has sanctity but not the script because the revelation was not done in a particularly holy 
language. I mean, Greek doesn't, that the original language of the um, uh, New Testament or in which the New Testament was written doesn't have that kind of sanctity which Hebrew has for Judaism or Arabic has um, for Islam. And that's really, uh, that's crucial. That's something that I think stays throughout um, the period I'm looking at and even beyond. I think if you go today to Israel-Palestine and you look at graffiti, graffiti in Israel-Palestine is much more textual than in other places, whether it's Arabic, Palestinian graffiti or Hebrew-Israeli graffiti. There's an emphasis on on text uh, that is really, really um, uh, striking. We should note also that the transformations from text as a sacred expression to a desanctified expression was not without resistance. Um, there was much anxiety and you could say perhaps even much grief around the idea of losing the special and magical qualities of Arabic and of Hebrew. And that's something that comes across particularly strong in your chapter on the Zionization of Hebrew. So can you explain really the anxieties, the worries, and perhaps the reservations that some folks had um, in the potential to lose Hebrew as a sacred religious language to a everyday national language. So the the kind of the the, the contestation in uh, uh, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, Shuism was on the uh, so called revival of Hebrew, which wasn't really, you know, it, it wasn't really a revival in the sense that Hebrew is used um, in uh, as a as a written language was used. Uh, in a continuous manner for in various ways. The discussion was more, the debate was whether it should be used for secular purposes in writing and whether it should be used as a spoken language. And that's the kind of the work of uh, the the um, generation of um, um, uh, teachers in Palestine, mainly in various, uh, in Jerusalem, in various colonies that, uh, taught Hebrew in Hebrew and, and created this new generation of Hebrew speakers. And that was a novelty. But there was also a contestation about kind of whether Hebrew should appear in public and in what way. And and um, the tradition is that, the tradition was that any, for example, any notice in square Hebrew letters and square Hebrew letters are the ones which had special sanctity, unlike other uh, scripts of Hebrew, um, these could not just be discarded or thrown into the bin. These were, if you had a paper printed in Hebrew, then it had to be buried as kind of part of a Geniza practices of collecting any kind of thread with writing in Hebrew and then Bearing it in a in a ceremony that used to take place in Jerusalem every few years, a quite public ceremony. So that is something that is possible to do uh, as long as Hebrew is used in a very limited way and for very specific congregational uh, needs. But once Hebrew is used for advertisements and for public notices in a variety of ways, that's creates, I mean, you know, a proliferation. There is a lot of people were in the, particularly in the Ashkenazi, Orthodox, um, anti-Enlightenment, you would say, anti-Maschilic circles, which were relatively 
strong in Judaism. And that's something that we have historical evidence uh, for. I'm using uh, uh, the novel of Shai Agnon only yesterday um, to kind of exemplify it. And Agnon kind of, is it, the novel is a lot about these contestations around Hebrew between the um, orthodox um, Ashkenazi um, uh, element and the more uh, modern, masculine, uh, enlighten, enlightenment circles that wanted to use Hebrew in a much more secular way, and that's um, so. That's a kind of fictional account, which but it it it, it communicates very effectively the anxieties that were felt and the kind of resistance that was felt on the part of the. Ashkenazi Orthodox uh, communities, as they saw Hebrew being employed uh, for completely secular, mundane, pedestrian uses. Um, I see it also in the, um, I used a survey of stone inscriptions that was prepared in the late 20s by um, someone called Pitchas Ben Tsvikraevsky, who was a member of Orthodox. Ashkenazi community in Jerusalem, and he set out to record all the Hebrew inscriptions of on synagogues, on schools, uh, on you know almshouses, any kind of institution. Now, what's interesting is these institutions were only, you know, mostly three decades uh, old. These were really new institutions. So, why it was so important to record? Uh, you know, and he has 2,000 inscriptions that he records because he lived through the transformation of the Balfour Declaration and the emergence of the new issue with Zionist secular leadership. And he saw that his community and the way that it used text were basically losing their importance, were becoming a kind of uh, relics of some past. And he wanted to uh, somehow, um, you know, leave some legacy and also to claim that they had a role in that Zionist story. And so for that, he set out to record all these inscriptions. And what is so striking is how uh, how that failed because, you know, I, I as far as I know, I'm the second scholar to look semi-seriously on this corpus of inscription. I mean, we're talking about at least seven books, booklets of quite extraordinary detail of uh, of these Hebrew stone inscriptions that he left and no historian um, made any serious use of. Uh, I mean, except for myself and, and, uh, and, and another, another one maybe that kind of started commenting about this. And that shows how, I think, how significant the shift to modern Hebrew meant that a significant body of writing was effectively discarded and kind of made irrelevant and insignificant. Right. It's interesting then that in this competition really between ideas and ideas of how things should be represented, there's a a victor and a loser, it seems, where there's one thought of belief um, as to how we should be using text that fades away as it becomes less popular in the modern period or less powerful and potent in the modern period, and another one that takes its place. 
Uh, this actually leads me to what I wanted to talk about with relation to coinage and money um, and the difference between the Ottoman discourses that are shaping how the Ottoman Empire is issuing coins and the British Empire is casing, um, it's issuing bank, bank notes and money um, when it takes over the mandate. And so to explain this a little bit more fully, I think it's fair to say that the Ottoman discourse that is shaping their late period kind of um, endeavor to put texts into space takes from ideas of progress and modernity and technology and things of that like. Whereas the British um, discourse that is shaping how they're issuing banknotes is really the inverse. It's more about capturing Palestine as a romanticized vestige of a biblical past. So in this competition between two different discourses, um, how did these different discourses shape how these two empires issued money? And in general, what did the money look like? So um, the change I'm looking at uh, is the change from coins to banknotes, which of course is not specific to Jerusalem or Palestine. But what's interesting um, to look at it, how it happens in Jerusalem, it happens very, very abruptly. So until 1914, um, there's hardly any use of banknotes, uh, certainly not in daily life. In, in Jerusalem. The main form of currency is, um, is gold coins. And that's, you know, if you had to pay for something, you would pay with gold coins or, or, um, or in some cases, uh, silver coins, if it's Ottoman coinage. And for every day, of course, you had uh, even, you know, uh, coins with... Uh, um, uh, not with precious metals, but that was kind of for everyday expenses. Um, and in 1914, the Ottomans issue military or banknotes that were necessary for the uh, military effort. Um, and quite dramatically, overnight, suddenly everybody has to start using banknotes, um, which doesn't go very well because people don't trust them. And then, and then the, the British... Um, uh, occupy Palestine in 1917. So they have, uh, for the first more or less 10 years, they use the Egyptian money, Egyptian pounds, which is, again, primarily in banknotes, and then they issue their own Palestine currency. So basically, in the war and in the aftermath of the First World War, there's a dramatic chain between coins to um, to banknotes. And it's really, really important because um, um, I think to, to kind of even imagine the difficulty of having economic activity when you have to pay for everything in gold coins is something that I think for us is, is quite difficult to uh, uh, get our heads around. And I think that the more I read accounts, I, I understand how cumbersome and uh, it was because, first of all, gold is heavy and it's unsafe because you have to carry sacks and it's very visible. Uh, but it's also unsafe for, for for thieves because, again, it's very heavy for thieves. If you if you if you uh, steal a, a sack of gold and you can't just kind of very 
you know, just get away very quickly. So it, it there's all these kind of material questions, which for me it was really, really important to explore because that kind of dematerialization is part of, I think it's true not just for money, but it's very visible in the case of money that uh, everything becomes dematerialized and and money becomes from a material object that is has text on it to a textual object that is the main thing about it is what's written on it. <coughs> now, in terms of what your question refers to, the ideological change, um, we see that with the Ottoman uh, coinage, we see it primarily with the, um, you know, the, the, the main ideological message was in the Sultan's emblem, the Tukra, which was kind of embossed um, on the on the coins themselves. And that kind of signified that this Palestine is part of a sultanic, imperial, Islamic state. So that was the kind of the, 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 the ideology that was involved there. But the Ottomans allowed the use of uh, French and British and other coins. And that was seen as kind of a... Um, the price of progress or the price of Ottoman weakness in a way that they were not able to dictate one sovereign uh, coin. And they, that was a kind of seen as a price of the development and, and the and, and uh, um, development of Palestine, the empire in general, but specifically Jerusalem with a lot of money coming into Jerusalem from tourism, from foreign foreign imperial investments from Britain and France and so forth. And that's and that you can't see it so much in terms of uh, design or text on the coins, but the general discourse was that Palestine is a place which is going through transformation and modernization, and that means a lot of money coming in, and that's a good thing. And that means, uh, for example... Uh, uh, the plan to bring electricity and tramways and a, a lot about a very naive discourse about, you know, we're going to build new roads, uh, um, we bring in cars, a lot of, you know, the kind of discourse that we would see today as a bit naive about the promise of progress and technology and so forth. With the British, when they arrive in Jerusalem, they bring a very different discourse, which is anti-progress in many ways. So the idea is that Jerusalem has to be protected. It's a heritage city. Its main importance was that it's holy for the entire world. It's an ancient city. And therefore, the main discourse is about preservation. It's about uh, antiquity. It's about sanctity. And that's and suddenly all these plans that the Ottomans uh, had in mind, like electricity and tramways, are either cancelled or or put on hold. And the main kind of projects are about conservation and preservation. And that we can see very much with the banknotes. The banknotes, uh, if you look at what on the British banknotes uh, and coins and stamps, it's all these biblical reference to. Uh, you know, the olive um, leaves and the this architecture of um, uh, 
sacred sites, whether it's the uh, Dome of the Rock or Rachel tombs um, in near Bethlehem. Um, we have one, uh, you know, one minaret from uh, Ramle, which they thought was a crusader, uh, um, crusader tower. Um, mistakenly, they identified it as a Christian heritage, but it was actually a, a Muslim uh, medieval uh, site. But for them, they, there was it was important to have a balance between uh, different communities. So for them, this was a Christian uh, site. And we have the Citadel of Jerusalem and, and various other uh, sacred sites which appear on these, um, on these uh, banknotes and coins and stamps. And it's really, and there's no people appearing on any of these uh, uh, artifacts. So when you look at at these banknotes, the, the image you get of Jerusalem and Palestine, uh, it's this kind of desolate country without any kind of people, without any kind of modern development and progress. And the only meaning of it is one of that kind of belongs to the past. Now that I think it's really, really interesting that 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 was the official discourse. While at the same time, of course, the British were f- facilitating tremendous transformation. A, first of all, by allowing the Jewish National Home and the uh, um, arrival of tens and then later hundreds of thousands of migrants and, and new towns and new settlements uh, being built. And second, by other forms of development, such as the Haifa uh, port, which they paid for and was, you know, changed dramatically the Palestine and the region. But for the British authorities, it was really, really important not to have the modern port on the banknotes. I think when it comes to discussion, the High Commission's High Commission of Palestine says, "Well, why would we put the Haifa port? It just looks like any other port. We need to put historical uh, places." So that kind of uh, that that importance of saying Palestine is a land of the past, it's a land of sacred heritage that is kind of allocated between these uh, different communities, stood very much in contradiction to what was actually happening, but it was provided a discourse of ideology that enabled them to pretend that these changes were not happening. Right, and it's interesting that this um, theme of the British Empire's idea of biblical romanticism in Palestine also carries over to their street naming and map making efforts. So we see that in one in the biblical allusions that they use to demarcate space. But another thing that we see that is important in how they demarcate space, which you've just briefly touched on, is how they deploy Hebrew as really a textual signifier of their formal commitment to Zionism um, as enshrined in the Balfour Declaration. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this, about text and the ideological division and control of space as it manifested through Hebrew. So how did the use of Hebrew in street names and then perhaps also in things like postage signs or on post-it notes, which are used also to demarcate a map and to sort people into specific zones and areas. Um, How did the use of Hebrew reflect Britain's commitment to Zionism there? And how did that signal a change um, for, for inhabitants of Palestine? So this is um, this is very crucial because it's um, 
especially when you talk about relations between the languages or between readers and writers of these languages, um, before the um, before the war, before the First World War, um, there's a lot of um, so there's a suddenly there's a quite dramatic proliferation of Hebrew, as I said, in the streets of Jerusalem, whether it's in adverts or notices or shop signs or stone inscriptions, which I mentioned. But there's no problem with these signs and the presence of Hebrew from our Palestinian perspective. I could find, um, after I I finished the book, I found one, uh, one case of an uh, Arab journalist and intellectual which wrote critically about the fact that Hebrew is more and more present in the street of Jerusalem. But that's just one person who kind of warned that this, there's something wrong about there's too much Hebrew in the street. Otherwise, I couldn't find any reference to objections to Hebrew and any sign that anybody had an issue with with the presence of Hebrew. In 1917, that uh, changed changes dramatically because of British commitment to the Jewish national home. And and Hebrew is quite dramatically understood as a national and a colonial language by Palestinian Arabs. And we see it already in the um, demonstrations of 1920, um, where we see that one one, uh, Hebrew... um, uh, signboard is vandalized by protesters who are protesting against the Balfour Declaration, and there's this kind of gets reported uh, in the press, and and that for me is the kind of the moment in which Arabic and Hebrew become rival languages, become enemy languages, uh, and something that didn't exist before. And from the very beginning, the Arab Palestinians understand that the presence of Hebrew is no longer just the language of the you know local Jewish community. It's also an affirmation of British commitment to the Jewish national home and potentially to their uh, dispossession of Arab Palestinians. And that's why there's... Um, a lot of resistance to the use of Hebrew as an official language, as part of the three official languages of Palestine, which were English, Arabic, and Hebrew. And I should say from the very beginning, that that recognition of Hebrew as an official language is not just, it's not multiculturalism, and it's not, you know, because Jews constitute a minority of, at that point, something like, 10% 10% of Palestine's population, and therefore we recognize it as one of the official languages. No, this was a very, very explicitly on behalf of the first High Commissioner, um, Herbert Samuel, a recognition of British commitment to the Jewish national home. And that's one of the reasons why, why uh, Samuel is very much interested in um, issuing banknotes and coins and stamps and 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 uh, placing street names because he wants to find the ways to make Hebrew visible as part of everybody's everyday lives in order to communicate to the 
population in the most simple way that Hebrew is here to stay and British commitment to the Jewish national home is here to stay. And you have you better start uh, getting used to it. Um, now, that's the kind of the context. And, and that's very, very clearly understood both by the Jews and by our Palestinians. Our Palestinians are resentful of, of that recognition of Hebrew, not because they're they dislike the language as such, because they understand that that's a national recognition. Uh, and it also um, it, it manifests a lot in debates over naming. So how do you call the country? Do you call it uh, Palestine or in Arabic, Philistine? Um, and, or you call it in Hebrew, Erz Israel, land of Israel, which means it's a political claim that means that the country belongs to Jews and will become a Jewish state eventually. And that's how our Palestinians read it, and they object to the inclusion of Eretz Israel as part of the name of, of the country. I mean, the official name in Hebrew was Palestinia, Palestina, which is Palestine, Eretz Israel in acronym, uh, Aleph Yud. And that's something that created a lot of... Uh, controversy. and this, So that's also true to the uh, street name plates. That is one of the very first things that the uh, High Commissioner orders when he arrives in Palestine. So he arrives in, uh, in the summer of 1920, and by August he uh, uh, tells the governor that he wants street names um, in signage in Jerusalem. And again, the, the, the um, the motivation here is not pragmatic or practical. There's no massive demand from residents of Jerusalem that they can't, you know, uh, they can't find their way around or their Uber taxis don't arrive in the right sp- place or anything like that. So it's really about symbolic and ideological um, um, transformation of the city, A, by making Hebrew visible, and B, by choosing the kind of uh, names for the streets, which again were all about the Bible, the Crusades, uh, ancient history of Jerusalem, as the only meaning which Jerusalem can take. And now that was very, very different from the street names that were in use at that point, which weren't, there were no street name plates, but they were used in, in oral culture, which are, were about, you know, important uh, buildings and so forth. It was kind of very uh, down-to-earth names like the the consulate street or the hospital street and so forth. And that had to be replaced with names that were laden with this kind of symbolic meaning like Prophet, Prophet Isaiah and, uh, and Prophet Streets and King David and... Uh, uh, Solomon and so forth. So that was very much as part of a ideological remaking of the city, both in the names that were chosen, but also in the visual register, which was especially in ceramic tiles that were designed to resonate with the ceramic tiles of the Dome of the Rock, and a way to extend the sanctity of the Dome of the Rock over the entire uh, city. So it was very, very charged. Um, symbolic operation through something as simple as street names. 
Right. I think you're making a really crucial point here about the intention that this isn't multiculturalism or something even as banal as just, you know, it's pragmatic and we need to be able to define the languages that are in play in this space. But it is very much about inscribing through text in a very literal manner, nationalism and sectarianism and um, mimicking this kind of imperial divide and conquer rule. So it's interesting to me that this theme of struggle, perhaps in competition over changing textual use has really guided our conversation so far. And I think that brings us into another thematic couplet that comes later in the book, which is between graffiti at the Western Wall and the role of Islamic banners in the annual Nabi Musa pilgrimage. So in both of these cases, we can see how nationalism, a thoroughly modern phenomenon, transformed religiously coded local traditions into sites of conflict in the process, making both practices more or less impossible to continue in the same way. So in both cases, we also see how new anxieties around deviant behavior, legality, and political incitement that came out of this shared experience with British imperial rule um, take shape in what is happening at the Western Wall and in Nebi Musa. So I don't have an explicit question on this per se, but for these two chapters, I'm hoping that you can summarize the key points and big ideas of these two fascinating phenomena. So I'm talking there about two pilgrims' practices um, that are very, very old. Um, One is the practice of Jewish pilgrims to write their names in sacred sites in general, but specifically on the stones of the Western Wall. And this is something that is documented from by in writing, but also in, in, in photographs and in paintings and so forth. So part of when you arrived in the Western Wall, you would write your Hebrew name in, in square Hebrew letters. Sometimes you would chisel deep into the stone you know, sometimes you would paint in red or black. And that was kind of to invoke, uh, you know, to uh, to bring blessing to yourself, to your family, and to... Uh, and it was a kind of ritual of devotion. It's really, really important to say. It was not, you know, some, uh, you know, something like uh, graffiti on, on the subway or vandalizing something and just putting your name... No, it was really religious ritual. The other practice is um, is the uh, Nabi Musa pilgrimage, which was an annual pilgrimage by Muslim uh, from all around the um, uh, Jerusalem, from Naples, from Hebron, and from villages. And that involved an embroidered banner that was written with verse, ver- verses uh, Quranic verses or others, um, and referred to holy prophets. And these banners were typically held in kind of very, kind of kept very carefully in sacred spaces throughout the year, and they would, they would be taken out on very specific occasions and then paraded throughout Jerusalem and then to the site of Nabi Musa, which is where Muslims believe Prophet Moses Musa was buried. And then the, the, the banners would be placed on the tomb of Prophet uh, Musa. In both cases, we have evidence of these practices for centuries, if not uh, more. So this is kind of very, very old 
traditions. What was interesting is that in the 20th century, both of these traditions become outlawed by the British authorities. So we have two textual traditions, which the British see as sub- subversive and dangerous and too risky, and therefore they move to effectively or impl- or explicitly ban them. So in one way, you could say that this kind of is an attack by the colonial authorities on on the fetishized text, which they fear. They fear that text as a fetish has some kind of power to disrupt the peace and disrupt presence and to be, be this kind of a, a, something which takes the situation out of control. And that's the main reason why they're against these traditions. Uh, but also what's interesting is that in both of these cases, the respective societies change their attitudes towards text. So in the case of Jewish society, um, these graffiti, graffiti become uh, improper and even um, you know um, inappropriate and dangerous from a Jewish establishment perspective. And in the case of the Islamic banners, it's not quite the same thing, but um, but we see a shift from these banners, which were extremely uh, important if you look at around uh, 1910 or 1920, and by the 1940s, they're effectively replaced by new kinds of symbols, which is the new Palestinian flag. So that kind of modern flag of, of four colors, which we still is around today, is is something that is much more understood immediately as a national symbol than these old and very specific uh, textual objects. So what, what I found interesting is that on the one hand, we see the colonial authorities move against these symbols, but on the other hand, we see that um, b- within both these respective societies, we see a move from the old text, sacred and specific to sight, to a new kind of text which is not specific to uh, architecture or uh, or um, embroidered banners, but it's used uh, in a national way in different ways. One thing I would say is that um, um, in in, uh, in the conflict is not just uh, between. Um, the British and respective societies and within these societies, but in the case of the Jewish societies, it's very much a, a conflict between um, newcomers and immigrants, and that's the kind of the new Zionist hegemony within the new issue, which is very, very different from uh, the kind of the Jewish communities of the 1900, 1910. Uh, and the, the, this new establishment... Um, sees the wall as something that to be taken over um, and be transformed into a national monument. So that kind of tension is between not just uh, between traditional and modern, but also between outsiders and local communities. And in a way, the colonizing zeal of Zionism that kind of 
emphasis not just on the national movement, but it's also a colonizing movement which seeks to take over space. It's also about colonizing the um, Jewish communities in Palestine and kind of taking the sites away from them and 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 uh, dictating a Zionist meaning. And Zionist meaning for the Western world is about ruin and redemption. It's about uh, a site that kind of represents uh, destruction while Zionism brings the, the promise of, of revival and rebuilding. Right. I think that point actually very nicely um, completes the turn that we've been aiming towards through this conversation, which is to say, how do things change um, as the modern period progresses? We've been talking a lot about competition between discourses, um, competitions between the use of text um, when signifier supersedes signified and also when text becomes something that we can use to control more so than something that just exists in the world sporadically. And I think this actually leads me to my final question on the book, which is going to speed us up to our contemporary moment. So what is happening with urban textuality and power in Israeli-Palestinian society today? And in particular, I'm thinking about the assault on Arabic as an official language. Um, Crucially within this, I'm wondering if you think there is an opportunity for what Benjamin would call um, liberatory counterwriting, or um, what is happening here is perhaps resistant to resistance, (laughs) to put it that way. Um, So, I mean, I think it's important to say that after 48, uh, the Zionist movement, and now Israel after 48, has state power, and therefore it's much more able to use text um, and to reify its own um, understanding uh, of history and connection, Jewish connection to Palestine, and to write it onto the landscape while erasing um, Arabic uh, uh, names, uh, nomenclatures, and and, uh, geographic uh, signification and so forth. We see this in maps. We see this in, um, you know, signage uh, uh, and, and so forth. And that's something that is, again, hardly is doesn't really appear so much in my book because before forty eight, the Zionist movement had some power to write its own text, but not so much to erase others and uh, and dictate the kind of the the, the real quote unquote names for for places. Now that's something that we see from the 50s onwards, the kind of the erasure of the Arabic geography and the replacement with a Hebrew geography that um, very um, consciously was designed to resonate with uh, the Bible and the ancient Jewish history um, in Palestine. Um in terms of the, that kind of escalates, and I think your question alludes to the um, the fact that Arabic was downgraded in the uh, nation state law of 2018, was downgraded from an official language, which is one of the two official languages in Israel, it was Arabic and Hebrew. Uh, so the only official language is Hebrew and Arabic has a special status. It's not clear what that status is. I think, in effect, um, I I don't think that there's a 
is a really changed dynamic. Uh, so that legislation, that uh, uh, nation uh, basic law of the nation state, I don't think we can say that it, uh, uh, you know, in, in any dramatic way changed the way that Arabic is used in public space. Arabic uh, was not used before 2018 and to a large degree. And when it was used, it was used to erase Palestinian Arab memory as much as it was used to, 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 to um, uh, um, indicate place names in Arabic. I mean, it's very clear that, you know, when the name of Jerusalem, Al-Quds, is um, written as Ushalim, which is a name that was used to specifically to resonate with the Hebrew Yerushalayim. And that's that started long before 2018. And uh, the, the state of Arabic writing in public space was abysmal before that, and that hasn't changed dramatically. The um, extent of Arabic proficiency among Jewish Israeli public was similarly a very limited before 2018 it hasn't changed in terms of the um, the power of Arabic I think that that's a very important question also in relation to Arabic being a Jewish language and that's something that um, part of the resistance to the nation state law and the downgrading of Arabic came from Mizrahi um, Mizrahi Jews of Jewish Arab heritage, which said, and that was a, uh, they appealed to the Supreme Court against the, the law, saying, this is our heritage that is being erased here because Arabic is also a Jewish language. It's used in, in, by Arab Jews as part of the region for um, more than a, a millennium. And that was rejected by the court quite <laughs> dismissively. Uh, now, there's a substantial number of Israeli Jews uh, who come from the Middle East and North Africa and for whom their heritage involves the Arabic language. Now, what does, you know, how does this challenge or not um, uh, the kind of the logic of erasure is an open question because uh, it's not clear to me that the very use of Arabic in the Israeli space um, necessarily counters that kind of dynamic of erasure. I mean, I think that's that's and that's something that people are some people are kind of you know celebrate as a potential for disruption, and some people dismiss as something that cannot really disturb the, the logic of erasure. I think that's still an open que- question. Uh, for me, I, I do think that Arabic has has a potential of disruption and potential of resistance because um, any presence of Arabic in the public sphere um, is not obvious in Israel. Um, and... And you can see it in the uh, and to the extent that Arabic is is literally erased in street names in Jerusalem and in a very regular way, you know, in uh, 
the street names have Hebrew, Arabic, and English, but very often the Arabic is vandalized or there's a sticker over the Arabic. So that obviously that bothers somebody enough for it to be erased. Now, the interesting thing is that often these names that are erased are in themselves Zionist names. So you have a kind of double erasure of, of the Arabic. But I think that indicates that Arabic does have a potential of disruption that is there and uh, and is um, you you can't normalize or you can't make Arabic into a Zionist language to a sufficient level that it will lose this kind of uh, disruptive presence. So in that sense, I think that that is is something that is interesting, and it's interesting because, as I, I mentioned, Mizrahi Jews and 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 the return to Arabic is something that we do see with Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, Jews of Middle Eastern heritage, which are more and more interested in their uh, linguistic heritage as part of that. And that doesn't necessarily have a political implication, but I can't, I can't see how you can diffuse that element from the use of Arabic in public space. So, so personally, I don't think, I think that is something that continues to be to resonate and have potential of resistance and and and, and disruption. Right. This uh, this open question uh, paradoxically brings us, I think, to a very good and natural close to the conversation. So I want to say thank you again for joining us today. This has been a really insightful um, conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation and for uh, the opportunity to present the book. <laughs>